Please turn to your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. We are continuing in 2 Peter chapter 1. This is part 2 of the two part in chapter 1. 2 Peter, verses 16 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your word. Thank you that you have deemed it good and wise to sanctify us through your word by the hearing of it and the doing of it, and that you have deemed it wise also to glorify your holy name through your word. Thank you, Lord, that we can find life and truth in your Bible. In Jesus' name, amen. Ask a Christian... Is the Bible important? And he will likely say, yes. I should hope so anyways. Ask the Christian, is the Bible necessary? Oh, yes, of course. That's where God speaks. It is necessary and it is important. Ask a Christian, is the Bible not only necessary and important, but sufficient? Is it enough? Is it all that we need in terms of godliness, in terms of knowing God's will for our lives, how to live holy, in terms of who God is, what he expects of us, heaven, hell, salvation, living righteously? Well, maybe, or not really, is a response that you might have, whether verbally or just by the person's own behavior and how they live. A lot of Christians believe that the Bible is important and it is necessary, but it is not enough. We need to seek other revelation. This popular view is expressed in a book that is adored and loved by many believers. This is just a sampling of this type of view. In this book, this author says this, I had been writing in prayer journals for years, but that was one-way communication. I did all the talking. I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. Here, this author knows that God speaks through the Holy Word. But, and there's a very dangerous but, because she says here that she yearns for more. There's something 
in addition to the scriptures that the Bible doesn't give that she needs, that she yearned. And you can read about these personal messages that she receives. And it's read by millions in Jesus' calling. She knows that it is necessary and it's important, but it is not enough. We're constantly being told by Christians and non-Christians that we need something other than the scriptures to live. The Bible can't help you with your depression. Not really. You need something else. You need some other people, some medical professionals who, who know better. If you're anxious or angry or you suffer from issues with lust, you need something other than the Bible or something in addition to. The Bible can help you. It can only take you so far, but you need something else. We're told that we need the Quran. The Old and New Testaments are the Word of God. They do have some transmission issues. There's some corruption, and we need to know what the proper text is. But that's good and necessary, just not enough. We, we need the other part, the Quran, that speaks of the final prophet that Jesus himself spoke about. Or we look at the Book of Mormon, the, the LDS, they say that we need the Old and New Testaments. Yes, they are true as far as they are translated correctly. But those are just two testaments. We have another testament of Jesus Christ. Jesus, after he came, after he ascended from Jerusalem, he came to the Americas, probably Central America. And he had other disciples right here that were waiting for him. And it was there that he has them follow him and he teaches them things that, that they couldn't get because they were geographically not where he was when he was in Jerusalem. And now we have this record of the Book of Mormon. And God speaks to us in the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants and Pearl of the Great Price and in the current prophet and president, Thomas S. Monson. We need the Bible, yes, but also this other revelation. Or we need these personal messages from God that the Bible cannot sufficiently give us. Do you believe that the Bible is not only necessary and important, but sufficient? That it is enough for life and godliness and truth? In our text this morning, we see Peter is saying, it is. It is enough. And we don't need to go beyond and seek after false teachers, revelators, seers, prophets, etc. And this word of God is far superior, superior to any experience that you may have. It's much better. If you remember, last week we saw that God is coming back in Jesus Christ. And in light of Jesus' coming, we are told to be holy. We are told to make our calling and election sure. We are told to be found spotless, without blemish, and at peace at Jesus' coming. And so, Peter tells us to be set apart by supplementing our faith with various godly attributes like love, brotherly affection, and steadfastness, self-control, virtue, knowledge. We are to add these to our faith because the real faith has them. We are to be set apart. 
One part of being holy and set apart is recognizing and believing in the sufficiency of Scripture. And in our section, Peter, in just these five verses, lays out foundational reasons for rejecting these false prophets, these false teachers, these scoffers, who say that the day of the Lord is not going to come. And to the extent that we have false teachers, and you know that we do, we would do well to heed Peter's prophetic commands and counsel. So this sermon is is divided into two sections. The first one here is, don't follow after myths. Peter begins our section with the word for. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths. This tells us that although this is a new section, it's still a subsection of, of, of Peter's overall thought here. Remember, he's trying to remind us to put on these godly qualities. And the reason he is reminding us to put these godly qualities is that they are not grounded in fiction, but in fact. This isn't a myth. This is real. So his point here essentially is this. We didn't follow after cleverly devised myths, so neither should you. And we didn't follow after them because we had the real thing. Why go after falsehoods when you have the truth? Why seek after erroneous teaching when you have God's very words? This isn't like Homer's Iliad or the Odyssey. This isn't like Virgil's Aeneid. This isn't like the mythological founding of Rome with Romulus, Remus, and that very nice and timely she-wolf. This isn't like the stories of the gods, the titans, the demigods. All of those are, are fun to read. They're very helpful for us to understand a people, its culture, its influences, how it thinks, its worldview. It's entertaining as well. But those are just stories. On the other hand, Peter's saying, this is not just some old story. This is not some moral lesson by which we should conduct our lives if we would like. This is truth. And he says that these cleverly devised myths were made known to them. He made known to his audience the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He cannot make known to them that which is false. I cannot say to you and make known to you that 2 plus 2 equals 5. You cannot know that. Because it isn't true. You can only know what is truth. And so, Peter is making known to them, this is truth. He says, For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. What does Peter have in mind here? 
This is clearly a reference to the transfiguration. If you go with me to Matthew 17, well, I'm going to read a few of the verses there. Matthew chapter 17. Remember, scoffers are saying that the day of the Lord is not going to come again. It's not going to happen. And they say in 2 Peter 3, 4, that... They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter, the sun rises and the sun sets. The sun rises and the sun sets. The sun rises and the sun sets. There's nothing new, Peter. How can you be telling us that there will be this day of the Lord coming? From the beginning of creation, it's all been as it has. And I think we also struggle with that idea as well. That, yes, Jesus said he's going to come back. But that was 2,000 years ago. That was a long time ago. So confessionally, we say, yes, Jesus is going to come back, but there might be a tinge of doubt. Well, I'll believe it when I see it. Peter is saying, oh, he's coming back. Because the truth of the day of the Lord's coming is also the truth of this transfiguration that he's talked about, that he's talking about here. Verse 2 in, in Matthew 17, And he was transfigured before him, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. You know the story. Peter, James, and John are brought up to the holy mountain by, by Jesus, probably Mount Tabor or Hermon near Galilee. They're brought up to him. And they see Moses and Elijah, which is quite a sight since they've been dead for all these years. Peter, James, and John, they've only heard about Moses, the great prophet, the one who, who parted the Red Sea, the one after whom there will be a greater prophet, the one who, who led the people out of Egypt. What an incredible man of God he was. And Elijah with his mighty ministry as well. I'm sure they, they heard about and read about him being taken up in a whirlwind. Incredible. But they're not the focal point. As great as they were, there was something much greater. Jesus Christ, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Here they get a glimpse of Jesus' refulgence, his glory, his light, his beauty. And Peter said, Lord, it is good that we are here. Well, yes, Peter, of course it's good. I brought you up here. It's good that we're here. Let me make you guys three tabernacles, three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Let's just hang out and, and talk and let's just be together. And then suddenly... A cloud overshadowed them. A bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud, the voice of God himself, said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. To this, they get, they get very scared. To hear a voice from heaven is quite a scary ordeal, I'm sure. But coming from God himself, their creator, their maker, their master, 
the eternal one, the majestic one, majestic glory as we're told in Second Peter, oh, this scares them. And Jesus touches them and he says, rise and have no fear. But after that, he, he tells them not to say anything until he's gone. What? Jesus, we just had this incredible experience on this mountain. We see Moses, Elijah, and you, a glimpse of you, the glory that you had with the Father in the beginning of time, before the foundation of the world, and we can't tell anybody about it right now? That's right. You've got to wait. And that's what Peter does in our text, Second Peter. He's just itching and dying to tell. We get so excited about telling some really weird dreams that we have. You've got to hear this dream I had last night. I was in this marsupial pouch, and it, it happened to be flying. And I was in the sky, and I see this cloud, and they're made of cotton candy. And we saw the whole landscape, and down there, there was this trees of blueberries that we ate to our heart's content. And it was incredible. At least I think it was a dream. We get so excited about telling really insignificant things. Peter, here has the truth. He saw Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, and he heard God himself speak to him specifically. And he's got to wait. And that's what he does. We do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot miss this. We do not have the literary luxury of pronouncing what we read here in Scripture as simple, just nice stories. Well, that's nice. That's, that's true for you or true for me, but maybe not for us all. Peter doesn't give us that option. He's saying all of this emphatically is not a myth. It happened. We experienced it. We heard the Father declare the sonship of Jesus Christ. We saw him in his glory just for a little bit. He spoke to us. Believe us. It happened. However, having said all of that, Peter makes a shocking statement in the next verse. And we have something more sure. Something more sure than the transfiguration, Peter? Are you sure? Oh, yes. What could that be? The prophetic word. You mean those words written on a page? Oh, yeah. That's more sure than the transfiguration, that personal experience you had. Oh, yeah. We might be a little disappointed at that. Because we crave experiences. We crave the miraculous. We think that we kind of got the short end of, this, of the stick here. We're on the wrong side of history. I want to be with Moses as he parts that Red Sea. I want to be with Joshua as God held that sun in the air so he could fight. I want to be with Elijah on Mount Carmel. See God consume the, the sacrifices and then have all those Baalite prophets killed for their false prophecies. I want to be Peter walking on water. I want to, be, I want to see Lazarus. I want to be Lazarus raised from the dead. Peter's saying... You don't need to look after personal experiences like that. 
We have the Word of God, and it is true. Whether you experience that or not, you don't need personal messages from God to you outside of Scripture. He has spoken to us in His Word. Peter is saying, as great as the transfiguration was, there is something more sure, and that is the prophetic word. It says in verse 19, And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What is this prophetic word about which Peter is speaking? Well, he clarifies that he is referring to Scripture itself. He clarifies that in verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Prophecy of Scripture. Peter is referring to the written word of God. This is more sure. This is what we live our lives based on. This is what we should go to constantly for guidance, for understanding our great God and Savior. Peter urges us to pay attention to this word because it functions as a lamp shining in a dark place. We know that the light is useful. It helps us to be well comforted. That's why we give our children night lights because they're scared of the dark. Light is helpful. It also helps us to not fall on ourselves or trip over some Legos or something. It's helpful. It illumines our darkness. And the light of Christ illumines our darkened hearts. In John, I know you guys are going through the book of John right now. In John 1... John the author says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is in reference to the Word of God, Jesus Christ. It's this person who has shined himself into our darkened hearts and has regenerated us, has saved us from our own sin-stained minds and hearts that we loved. And we would do well to pay attention to this light as we await the day of Christ. Peter says poetically, the day, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The morning star here refers to Jesus Christ himself. In fact, in Numbers 22, there's a prophecy about Jesus as the morning star, as the star and scepter comes from Balaam. But in Revelation 22, we see this prophecy fulfilled. Revelation 22:16 says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. This is our Lord. And this day that is going to dawn, this is that day that the scoffers say is not going to happen. But Peter assures us will. There will come a time when, when Jesus will come back. 
and he will judge the, the living and the dead. He will execute judgment. And for those who are found to have faith in him and in him alone, trusting in him sufficiently and nothing else, they will be blessed. And those who are trusting in their own works, their own false gods, their own false teachers, they will be judged and sent to an eternity in hell. It's coming, Peter says. And when Christ comes back, the morning star will rise in our hearts. He will cause us to know him truly. More truly than we, than we do now. Because when Jesus comes back, we will not hold any false beliefs or thoughts anymore. What an incredible day that will be. We will no longer have any wrong ideas about Jesus and his word. We will certainly not be omniscient, because then we would be God. But we will know things truly. We will know as we have been known. But meanwhile, we need to continue to pay great attention to this prophetic word. And Peter tells us why. Because no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Remember the context here. Peter is, is about to um, refute and lay into the false teachers. But to accuse them of false teaching in the next uh, chapter. And he's saying here that man didn't just think this stuff up. This comes from God himself. It's not from someone's own interpretation. He says in verse 21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but, God, or but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men didn't just come up with this stuff one day. Well, I, we see bad stuff in the world, so there must be a problem. There must be some God that we hold accountable to. And, well, we need, it. we need this problem solved. So let's just make up this person. It's called Jesus. And he's going to live for us the life that we needed to live. And he'll die for us. He'll pay a penalty for us. And then he'll, he'll, he'll conquer sin, he'll conquer death, he'll conquer the grave and the devil. We didn't just think the stuff up. How could we have? This is the only faith-based religion where there is righteousness imputed to us solely by faith and not by our own works. And Peter here is telling us the origin of Scripture. It comes from God himself. It's the very voice of the Lord. And this voice of the Lord has spoken clearly, authoritatively, and sufficiently. He has spoken to us through, through nature, certainly. The, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. We, we know because of the creation, and we know because of the moral law implanted in our hearts that we are image bearers of God, and we are held accountable to Him. And so we are without excuse. God has also spoken to us very clearly in his word. He assumes his own existence, and he assumes that we are hold, held accountable to him. We are without excuse. God has spoken clearly. We cannot one day, like Bertrand Russell said he's going to do when asked, what are you going to do when 
you, if this Christianity thing is true, and you're before God, what are you going to say? And he's going to say, not enough evidence, God. Not enough evidence. No, that's hogwash. You are without excuse. We are all without excuse. God has spoken clearly in his word, and he has spoken authoritatively. When he speaks, he speaks with the authority of the divine, the eternal one, all that he is, your creator, the one who lived before you and had perfect love, harmony, and union with the Trinity, with himself with the members of the Trinity. God has spoken. He has also spoken sufficiently. He isn't going to give us these 66 books of the Bible and then say, well, you need other revelation. I'm going to give you 66 books, give you scripture here, but that's only part of the answer. You need more revelation that, well, that'll be coming later on, maybe 1,800 years in Joseph Smith or 600 years in the Quran, or 2,000 years in, in other books that claim to be from him, or revelations from him. Everything else plays second fiddle to God's word. God has spoken sufficiently. He wants us to know him and to know him truly, and he wants us to know his will for our lives, our sanctification, and, and how to be sanctified by his word. And Paul, as we read, would say that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God might be equipped for every good work. There isn't anything that you can do that's good that isn't based on the Bible, that isn't given to you through the help of God in his word. In 2 Timothy, Paul says that. And here, in 2 Peter, we, we see that he is speaking of the sufficiency. It is not a coincidence that in their final letters, both Paul and Peter are emphasizing the sufficiency of Scripture. They want us to be going back to the Word of God. It's here where we have life. It's here we have truth and proper teaching. It's here where we can subject all those other teachings to see if they are in line with what is real. It is the case that men did speak, but they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this word carried along in verse 21 is actually the same word and in verses 17 and 18 as translated born. When Peter talks about the voice being born, it's coming from God himself. Here, being born, he's referring to the origin of Scripture. This, again, is God's word. It isn't man's word. It isn't someone's own interpretation. The whims of mankind. It's from God himself. But God used mankind. God used all of these authors of Scripture in their own styles, their own vocabulary, their own education, their own cultural influences. He used them in their own unique situation to bring forth his consistent word of God. It's like all these authors are speaking with one voice, because they are. 
God's voice. This isn't some dictation theory where God just says, Okay, Peter, write 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, Peter, write verse 2. May, the, may grace and peace be multiplied. It's not how it was. In some mysterious fashion, God was able to preserve man's responsibility and his own style, his own words, but also having the words be God's words. That there's no word here in Scripture that wasn't intended for God to be there. That, that's something we can take great comfort in. God is, is sovereign over the giving of his word. <clears throat> and since it comes from God, it's truth. It isn't just true. It isn't just one of those things that happen to be true. It is truth. It is the very standard of truth. And so anything that comes up against it is, by very definition, false. Because it doesn't come from God himself. It comes from man. Since God is not going to contradict himself. And so the second point here is that Peter's saying... Since we, your fellow apostles, didn't follow cleverly devised myths and follow prophecy, you should do as well. It's really one point. Follow the word of God. Don't follow cleverly devised myths. Follow God's word. How do we distinguish false teaching from true teaching? Well, let's make some concluding remarks. God has revealed the truth to us in the word. And so we need to read our Bibles. We need to test the spirits to see if these things are so. Be Bereans. When Paul came to Berea, what did they do? They searched the scriptures to see if what he was saying about the resurrection was in fact true. And what scriptures did they have back then? The Old Testament. The Old Testament prophesied about Jesus and that there would be a resurrection. So we test the spirits. This means that we need to be readers of the Bible. And we need to be studiers of the Bible. Do you cherish the Word of God? Do you read it knowing that this and this alone comes from God? And every other writing that you read doesn't come from God. So this is special. It has the very voice of the Lord. And do you cherish it because in it you, there's life and in it you are exhorted and commanded and encouraged to live righteously based on what God says? Do you cherish it because it speaks of the Word of God, Jesus Christ, your Savior, your Lord? And the dangers of not knowing this word are catastrophic. If you do not establish in your hearts, in your minds, the divine origin, the necessity, and the sufficiency of Scripture, if you don't establish those from the, from the outset, you will be tossed to and fro from those false teachers who seek to mislead you with their 
fine-sounding arguments and cleverly devised myths. I think of false teacher Creflo Dollar. In, uh, he's just a, one among many who, who spout this, this false teaching that we are little gods. We are gods, little G-gods. And here's how he reasons. When cats get together, they produce cats. When dogs get together, they produce dogs. When horses get together, they produce horses. So when the Godhead gets together, and he pauses for effect, the Godhead, because he is under some universal principle that kind produces kind, like after like, because of this, the Godhead, when he gets together, he is forced to make little gods. Well, part of that sounds true. It is true that horses produce horses. A cat cannot produce an elephant. That would be both painful and odd. <laughs> Dogs can't pr- cannot produce mice. So yes, kind produces kind, but whoever said that there's this universal principle that applies to God himself, that God, how could God create another God? By the act of creation, that person is not a god. So an, a created god is not a god. It's just, it's, it doesn't make any sense. There's an infinite chasm between God and his creation. And so, it sounds good initially, and he, and he misleads many people. And it, it does tickle the ears. Yeah, that'd be nice to be a god, I guess. And that is the heart of the unregenerate, right? That's ultimately our idolatrous hearts. By not being grounded in the word of God, we can be easily led astray. And we can think like the world thinks, and not like we Christians are supposed to think. I think about two hot issues that have to do with morality, that Christians succumb to the way the world thinks we think of, uh, I think of abortion, for instance. And abortion is not the unpardonable sin. If you have had one, you can be redeemed. Maybe you have had one and you have been redeemed. You've experienced the grace of God in that. But it is a sin, a very heinous one. But the world has influenced Christian thought. A lot of Christians think, well, I want, I want that woman to have the right to choose. It's her own body. She can do whatever she wants with it. And God's an American, so he cares about <laughs> women's choice. So, who am I to, to stop that? I personally wouldn't have one, but it's okay if, if she has one. Forgetting, of course, that we are bought with a price. We are not our own. We are image bearers of God. And he has told us not to kill our babies. Or I think of the issue of homosexuality. So many Christians have succumbed to improper thinking, like the world. We, we think, yeah, they, they love each other. Why, why wouldn't we be for that? And God is a God of love. It says in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. And when you have love right there, however it's expressed, I'm all for that. And they're not harming me anyways. They can do whatever they want. Forgetting, of course, that it's God himself who has determined how love is defined. 
And it's God himself who has determined the design of marriage between a man and a woman. Where do you find all this stuff? How do you know these things? In God's word. That's sufficient. And so look for truth, doctrine, principles for a godly living in his word. We're told again in in verse 3 that his divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We have all that we need. We don't need Creflo Dollar and his logic. We don't need the Book of Mormon, the Quran, anything else that is outside of Scripture that is saying this is important and wise for you to know because it comes from God himself. We need the Word of God and we need it desperately because in it is life and light in Jesus Christ. Let's rest in the one whose word is better than anything else. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your word. Lord, convict us. We have not loved your word as we ought to. But we do love your word. We know, Lord, that you speak through it, that you sanctify through it. And that you didn't have to give us your word. General revelation condemns us enough. We already know. We're already without excuse. Just being creation. But you have so graciously given us your word that has talked about Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, help us to to love the word and to be ever more obedient to what it says. In Jesus' name, amen.